Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for Jesus Christ. And, and he wasn't kidding around when he said that if anyone would come after him, we must follow him. We must take up our cross. We must deny ourselves. And so, Lord, in that spirit, in that vein, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for the Holy Spirit who has set us apart, who has saved us by the means of regeneration and opening our eyes to the gospel of Christ, opening our eyes to the, the beauty of the cross, which can cover every, each and every sin to present us holy and pure and blameless before you. And Lord, we do continue to pray for this one that we have disciplined. Our hearts are broken, our hearts are saddened, but we also know that you are faithful. You are faithful to your church. You are faithful to those who are truly yours. You are faithful to save those who are to be saved, and you are faithful to judge those who are to be judged. And we fall back on your mercy, on your sovereignty, on your wisdom. We thank you in your wisdom, Lord, that you have directed us to maintain the purity of the church. And certainly the main way that we maintain the purity of the church is through the preached word, through the exposition of your scriptures to make us more and more like Christ. And so to, to that end, Lord, we pray that this time in your word would be useful, would be profitable. Most importantly, Lord, that it would be honoring and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You know this person, but I'm going to describe him in ways that maybe you haven't heard before. But he is considered to be the greatest literary genius of all time. He is considered to be the greatest thinker of all time. He is considered to be the greatest speech maker of all time. He is thought by many to be the most amazing storyteller of all time. He could speak in terms that would stump the highest academics, and he can speak in terms that a three-year-old child can understand and grasp. He's considered to be the greatest debater of all time. He would shred the logic of his opponents with direct or indirect answers. In fact, what was so unique about him was that he was able to take two completely opposite ideas and, in short, brief fashion, bring them together, which created one profound truth. And this profound truth would be expressed in very simple terms, and yet when you try to understand it, it would make your mind hurt. This putting together of two opposite ideas is known sometimes as a paradox. And this master of words, this virtuoso of ideas, this artist of thinking who could express profound truth by slamming together two seemingly contradictory ideas into a paradox, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master of the spiritual paradox, saying something that the greatest theological minds could not understand, but a five-year-old could say, that makes sense to me. He would say things like, in Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What? That doesn't make sense. He prayed in Matthew 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. It's a paradox. He said in Mark 10, 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. How do you figure that out? He said in Mark 10, 43 and 44, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. 
As a matter of fact, in the sovereign plan of God, he set up an entire episode, an entire drama, an entire happening, a real-life drama, all so that Jesus could give another spiritual paradox. And the spiritual paradox that Jesus will give is basically this. If you believe you have spiritual sight, then you're blind. And if you believe you're spiritually blind, then you have spiritual sight. That's the paradox that he's going to give. And this, of course, is found at the end of John chapter 9 in our text for this morning of the last several verses, verses 35 through 41. Now, when we began in John chapter 8, a number of weeks ago, I operated under the assumption that the greatest hymn writers of both the past and the present have reflected the glorious doctrinal truths found in our Bible in these hymns. And we have not been disappointed. We've called this series, What the Hymn Writers Know. And what we've seen is what the hymn writers know is that believers in Christ are desperate and we have a desperate need to sing and to rehearse and to be saturated in the great certainties of our faith. In our text today, which contains this spiritual paradox of spiritual sight versus spiritual blindness, we're going to see unfold before us one of the sweetest, most poignant professions of faith in Jesus Christ in all the Gospels, a scene in which a a helpless and destitute man places his trust in Christ and is cleansed of his sin, becoming the believer in and the worshiper of Christ. And this truth is reflected so poignantly and beautifully in the 1882 hymn, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.'" And so if our theory is correct that the greatest hymns will reflect the greatest truths, we see it once again. And I love verse 2. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood. And this is such a key phrase. And in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Now, what we've seen over the past couple of messages is that John chapter 9 is really this slow-motion, unraveling account of the salvation of a man who's born blind. Jesus has healed his physical blindness. He's given him physical sight. But much more than this now, he's healing his spiritual blindness. He's going to give him spiritual sight. And this drama in John 9 really has three main characters. There is Jesus Christ, and he is the judge of all mankind, who will be blind and who will see, as we'll see in verse 39. Second, we have the blind man, the man formerly blind now, who represents those that Jesus will forgive, those he will save. Then you have the Pharisees. We've talked extensively about them in the past. These are the ones who represent those that Jesus will judge and condemn. So you have the Savior and the judge who decides you have those who will be saved and those who will be condemned. Now Jesus has healed the man born blind. And in verse 1, we saw that Jesus sought after him, went after him, chose him. He picked him. He came to him. He elected him. This man is begging outside the temple. He's been blind from birth. Jesus healed the man and then he disappears. He just goes away, and for the rest of the, almost the entire chapter, Jesus is gone, really for the bulk, the meat of this whole chapter. And all the way from verses 13 through 34, we saw the Pharisees calling this man to them multiple times, giving this poor man a a blistering interrogation. They hate Jesus, and they're trying to find any reason to accuse him. And so they're getting this poor guy who's just been healed to try to say, Jesus is a sinner. Now, at this point, when this man who was just healed moments and minutes earlier is before the Pharisees, he doesn't really know that much. He doesn't know who Jesus was. 
But he did come to some logical conclusions, and we looked at those last time in detail. He came to the conclusion, first of all, that Jesus is a prophet, that he's sent by God. He came to a second conclusion that if Christ is from God, you don't deny him. And the third conclusion he came to is that Jesus is doing all these miracles that proves he is from God. And so this is just a humble man. He's just a beggar. And he comes to these accurate theological conclusions. But then when he's called before the Pharisees, he's flabbergasted and he's flummoxed by the fact that these great religious minds of Israel aren't seeing the obvious. That Jesus is from God, he is sent by God, he is an emissary of God. And ultimately, the Pharisees cast this newly healed man out of their presence and on top of that, remove him from fellowship, synagogue fellowship, because of his association with Jesus. And the man didn't even know who Jesus was yet. Unlike what we've just witnessed in our own body today, this man was removed from fellowship because he loved Christ. What an upside-down fellowship that must have been. And so the story really reaches its climactic point now. It serves as the culmination of the spiritual truth that Jesus has set this whole scene up to present that those who believe they have spiritual sight are the actual blind ones. And those who believe they are spiritually blind are the ones whose eyes have just been opened. This is the paradox he's going to present. Now, we might present this spiritual paradox as sort of a how-to guide, depending on where you want to be. We want to serve everyone we can, so I want to give you a how-to guide that covers everyone. First, we'll talk about how to be spiritually blind and see. And then if you want to be in this category, we'll talk about how to have spiritual sight and be blind. Never say we don't try to serve everyone's needs at Grace Bible Church. So for those who want to be spiritually blind and see we might identify three components to this. First, humbly receive God's pursuit. Humbly receive God's pursuit. Now, this man whom Jesus healed has just been rejected by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. He's already, even in his first day seeing, has paid a a very steep price for standing up for Jesus, and he didn't even know who Jesus was yet. And so now this man is walking around in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. This is right after the eight-day-long Feast of Tabernacles has come to an end. These temporary shelters that were set up by the people to remember their days in the wilderness long ago, they're being taken down. Families who travel to Jerusalem for the festival are, are packing up. They're leaving. There's, there's a lot of people going. It's kind of the, kind of the calm after a big festival The man had been at the temple because that's the best place to receive alms as a blind man since people are in a worshipful mood and maybe they want to, as it it were, incur the favor of God by giving a little bit to the poor. So Jesus had found him, he had called to him, he had healed him, and then Jesus disappeared. He just went away. He just found himself somewhere else. And so this man, who's all alone, is called by the Pharisees. I would think, if I were just going to look ahead, I would think that the Pharisees are going to say, hey, tell us who this great guy is so we can meet him too. That's not what happened. Instead, they excoriated this poor guy for his logical conclusion that Jesus must be from God. And by the way, he was even rejected by his own parents who refused to help him, refused to stand up for him, refused to associate with him. 
And so now without a job, without friends that we know of, without a direction, he's out on the streets of Jerusalem. He's been seeing sights that he's never seen in his entire life since he was born blind. And yet how strange it must have been to have simultaneously gained his sight and be expelled from formal Jewish life all on the same day. Now he'd been taught and around those all around him believed that his blindness must have been because of some heinous sin. And since he was blind from birth, it must be that he is so naturally wretched that even in the womb of his mother, God would afflict him. That was what he was taught. That's what those around him believed. That's what he was led to believe. And based on that belief, then the opposite, being healed by Jesus of his blindness, would mean that his sins are now forgiven, that God is looking with grace and favor on him. That would be his logical conclusion. But how confusing is it that those who claim to represent God have now tossed him out in the street? But no one who has been touched by Jesus is ever alone again, not ever. And this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would come to find him. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? For the second time in this episode, Jesus took the lead in pursuing this man. He pursued him. He sought after him. He went after him. Why? Because no one pursues God. God does all the pursuing. Romans 3, 10 through 12 makes it very clear that no one seeks after God. So Jesus asked this very simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the man who was born blind was in and around the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. The entire culture revolved around the word of God. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which he did dozens of times, in fact, it was his most popular designation he gave himself more than any other designation, there's at least two major connotations. Why would he say, do you believe in the Son of Man? Two major things for us to understand. First of all, that the representative of God on earth is not a spirit, he's not an angel, he's not a voice from heaven. The representative of God on earth is to be a human being. That he is to be born of a mother just like us so that God coming to earth has bridged that gap between us by literally becoming like us. But the second connotation that this man born blind would have understood is that this is a, a messianic, it is a divine designation which says that this human representative of God is not only the representative of God, but he is God that he will rule the world someday as the king of the kingdom. And this belief and understanding is based in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in which one like the Son of Man is presented in heaven. And here's what happens when he's presented. Daniel 7, verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus asked if he believed in the Son of Man, this is loaded with implications, loaded with meaning. Do you believe in the promised Messiah of God, who is the human representative of God on earth, who is God, who has given all the kingdoms of the earth and who will rule with dominion in an everlasting kingdom? Do you believe in him? Now there's two characters in this verse, Jesus and the man, and each play the role. The role of the man was passive. He's wandering the streets. 
alone and without direction. The role of Christ is active. He sought him. He pursued him. He spoke to him. And he asked him the exact right question. In reality, the man had absolutely nothing to contribute up to this moment. All he could really do was to humbly receive God's pursuit of him. God was already preparing his heart. God was already setting him up to look accurately upon Christ. God was opening this man's spiritual eyes to see his need for the Lord. By the way, this is exactly, is precisely the dynamic that Jesus has already explained in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this man has been clearly drawn by the Lord, clearly pursued by God. So the first component is to humbly receive God's pursuit. There's a second component. Humbly seek Christ. Humbly seek Christ. The second component to being blind and yet seeing is to humbly seek Christ, seek after Christ. Now, when Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? In Greek, there's an extra word that our our English version doesn't reflect and it doesn't necessarily have to. But if we put that extra word in, it's emphatic. Jesus said, you, do you believe in the Son of Man? And we can almost picture him pointing at him. And Jesus has cornered this guy, not in an unfriendly fashion, but cornering him to get him into the kingdom. That he must personally seek Christ. Christ has sought after him. He's here. Do you believe? And this is the crossroads. And the man didn't miss the emphatic nature of Jesus' question. Look at verse 36. He didn't try to work his way around this he answered directly he answered and who is he sir that i may believe in him and at this moment the man knows that jesus is the man who healed him he believes he's a prophet sent by god to do the miracles of god but that's it that's all he knows and now this man who healed his eyes is doing him another favor wow you healed my eyes now you've come after me again and you're telling me that the messiah is here are you telling me that he's offering to introduce him to the messiah to the holy one of god to the one who can seal his forgiveness of his sins which the regaining of his sight seemed to indicate was actually beginning and without hesitating the man humbly asks sir Who is he that I can believe in him? He's humble. He's deferential. The phrase that I may believe in him is a verb form in Greek that says, this is something that I wish. It's something that I desire. It's something that I want. He didn't say, who is he that I may consider him? Who is he that I may investigate him? Who is he that I may interview him? Who is he that I may consider him? Who is he that I may think about him? He went right to the crux of the issue. Who is he that I may believe in him? how soft and prepared his heart is already. God had prepared him to believe, but the man still needed to believe. Our understanding of divine election does not preclude human responsibility to have faith, even though that faith itself is a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is the interaction of the divine sovereign choice of God and mankind's real, genuine human responsibility to believe. In fact, Jesus expressed this dynamic in yet another paradoxical statement of truth. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
the work of God that you believe. Now, why was this man ready to believe? Why was he there on the cusp of faith? Because God had prepared his heart to believe and had empowered him and awakened him to true saving faith. The first component in how to be spiritually blind and see, humbly receive God's pursuit. The second is to humbly seek Christ. I might suggest a third component, and that is to humbly believe and worship Christ. Humbly believe and worship Christ. After being prompted by Jesus that this man must personally, himself, no one else can do it for him, he must personally believe on the Lord Jesus. He must believe on the Messiah of God. He must believe on the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. After having shown faith by inquiring after Christ, Jesus gives him the best news of his life. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Never let it be said that Jesus doesn't have a way with words. Did you catch what he said to the man born blind? You have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. By the way, when did this man first see Jesus? About 30 seconds earlier in verse 35. That's the first time he ever laid eyes on him. Because you remember that when Jesus found him as a blind man, the way Jesus healed him was to make some mud, put it on his eyes, tell him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash, and he would be healed. And he did, but Jesus was gone. So this is the first time he's ever seen him. This man who had never seen Jesus had already publicly defended Jesus to his own harm and persecution. He had faith in a Savior he had never seen, just like we're called to do. We're called to have faith in a Savior we've never seen. And it's only now that the man actually sees Jesus, and in a rare glimpse of the actual moment of salvation, this man responds immediately. In verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And I want you to know this here. Belief and worship go hand in hand. You cannot be one who says, I believe, but I do not worship. You cannot be one who says, I believe, but I won't obey. You cannot be one who says, I will take Jesus as my Savior. I will not take him as my Lord, maybe another day. A believer is characterized by one who is a worshiper, and worship is defined as obedience. You cannot be a true believer and yet not be a worshiper. In John chapter 6, we saw that Jesus, by this time, already had thousands of people, tens of thousands of people coming after him. And they're referred to as disciples. But when Jesus called them to a radical following of Christ, to worship Christ at all costs, John 6.66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In fact, verse 38 here is the only reference to the worship of Christ in all of John's gospel prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. But the question is, how did this man worship Christ? The text doesn't say, but clearly he did something. It's a verb. He did some sort of action. He performed some sort of act to demonstrate worship of Christ. Well, the Greek word here used... It means in its most literal sense to bow down as an act of allegiance. It means to incline your face to the ground. It means to fall down and to worship. In fact, it can mean to get down on your face and to kiss the feet 
of somebody. It can mean to take the hem of their garment and to kiss the hem of their garment. And what did this mean in this culture? And what does it mean today? It's an expression of complete other dependence, complete other submission to a higher authority. It is an act of saying, you are above me. You are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my devotion. You are worthy of my allegiance. And for all who would be spiritually blind so that you can see, this is the end result. This is what God is aiming for. The ultimate purpose of your salvation from sin is not just to save you. The ultimate purpose is not just for you. As a matter of fact, that's a secondary cause. That's a secondary benefit. You just happen to benefit. The ultimate purpose of your salvation from sin is so that someday creation will be populated with endless worshipers of God so that the goodness and the majesty and the beauty and the delight of God would be magnified and exalted for all of eternity. The worship of God is the reason for the redemptive story of the Bible. That is the end game. Specifically, so that the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, might be given by his Father this gift of countless millions of believers extolling his name, extolling his might, extolling his glory. And of course, for us, for the true believer in Jesus Christ, you're at your best, you're at your most joyful, you're at your your happiest, you're at the most in perfect peace at the moment you are worshiping God in Christ. You know, I've heard some of you say, I wish every day was Sunday. Why is that? Because we're at our best when we're worshiping, when your thoughts are only of him and and his love and your grace and his, his mercy and his power. And then Monday comes and you go, wow, this is hard. We're at our best when we worship. So how can you be spiritually blind and see, humbly receive God's pursuit, humbly seek Christ, humbly believe and worship Christ? Now, in case this is confusing you still, because it is confusing, it's a paradox, Jesus provides what's really the point, the explanation of this entire episode. So before we move on how to, be, how to have spiritual sight and be blind, we need to see this statement that Jesus is going to make that really serves as a transition from one paradox to another. And that is found in verse 39. Verse 39, he says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. There's the, there's the whole thing in a nutshell. Now, the Bible is replete with the metaphor of blindness to explain the inability of fallen mankind to comprehend the truth of the gospel. What Jesus is saying here is not an unknown concept at all. The idea that a person can independently and intellectually decide to understand their need for God and for forgiveness, there's no support for that in the scripture whatsoever. Blindness is blindness. Isaiah 43.8 says that people are blind even though they possess eyes. Jeremiah 5.21 speaks of the spiritually blind as those who have eyes, but they still can't see. Jeremiah similarly calls the fraudulent spiritual leaders of Israel blind men who know nothing in Jeremiah 56. Jesus loved this metaphor. He used it frequently. In Matthew 15, verse 14, he told others that the Pharisees are blind guides. In Matthew 23, he told them to their face, you're blind guides. He said, woe to you, blind guides. He said, you blind fools. In this same sermon, he says, you blind men, you blind guides, you blind Pharisee, you blind guides, you blind fools. I think his point is clear. 
And in this sermon, he's excoriating them for appearing to be righteous, but having no inward faith, no inward conviction, no inward reality of love for God. And he calls them whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. He says that's spiritual blindness. When the Lord Jesus commissioned the Apostle Paul, here was his mission as recorded in Acts chapter 26. Christ was sending Paul to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When Israel officially rejected the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, he began teaching in parables, which were easy enough for a child to understand, and yet they would hide spiritual truth from those who are arrogantly spiritually blind. And he gave this explanation to Matthew 13, beginning in verse 13. He said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. He goes on to say that they will indeed see, but never perceive. He goes on to say their eyes have been closed. And if your eyes are being opened, the parables unlock the secrets of the kingdom. And if your eyes are blind, the parables make you think, this guy is crazy. I don't understand him. The Apostle Paul characterizes the unsaved as participating in unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians 5, the Apostle John characterizes the unsaved as walking in darkness. 1 John 2, as a matter of fact, the final destination of all who would reject Jesus Christ three times is called by Jesus the place of outer darkness meaning the place where spiritual blindness is forever, where you will never worship and see the glory of Christ. You will only see his wrath. But we still haven't really grasped why spiritual blindness is the way to be saved and spiritual sight is the way to be lost. Well, let's see if we can make a little progress here. Our other how-to guide for this spiritual paradox, how to have spiritual sight and be blind. How to have spiritual sight and be blind. And if this is where you want to be, let me help you out. Number one, proudly assert your spiritual qualifications. Proudly assert your spiritual qualifications. Now, why is Jesus making this statement in verse 39 to the man who just expressed his faith in Christ? This is a very, for judgment I came to this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. This is a very theologically deep and rich statement. Why is he explaining that he is the one who decides that the blind will see and seeing will be blind. Well, verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Those little sneaks, they're following these guys around. They saw that Jesus had met up with this guy again and they said, let's go find out what's happening. So this wasn't a private conversation between Jesus and this man after all. And so the Pharisees proudly say, are we also blind? Now, this sentence in Greek begins with a little word called a particle that you don't necessarily translate, but what it does is it gives you the mood of the sentence. And the mood of this statement by the Pharisees, allowing for this particle, this is the mood. Surely we are not blind also, are we? 
In other words, we who are the righteous guides of Israel, we who set an example of rigid outward obedience to the law, we who wear the tasseled robes and sit in the places of honor at all the feasts and all the banquets, we who are given respect by the people as we walk through the streets, we who are the experts in the law of Moses, surely we are not the blind ones, are we? In fact, the exact phrasing of this sentence expects a negative answer. They expect Jesus to say, oh, oh, no, your excellencies. I wasn't talking about you. You're, you're the good ones. I mean, you, you give a lot, and you're, you know, you're the wealthy ones. You're the, you're the good ones. No, I would never say that about you. It's all these other scumbags that they were, I'm talking about. So instead of admitting their spiritual blindness, instead of admitting their hatred and the venom that they have for Christ, they're essentially asserting how wonderfully spiritual they are. Now, they're asking the question which they should expect a direct answer, but Jesus doesn't give them one. Instead, he gives them, guess what? A paradox. How to have spiritual sight and be blind. First, proudly assert your spiritual qualifications. Second, proudly refuse God's grace. Proudly refuse God's grace. And here's the paradox that he gives them. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now, why is that a paradox to them? He says something that nails them right in their hearts because they thought blind people were the guilty ones, the ones unforgiven. But he says if you were blind, you wouldn't have any guilt. Now we're starting to see why you have to be spiritually blind in order to see. To admit spiritual blindness is to admit a need for forgiveness, a need for God's grace, uh, to admit your sinfulness and your guilt before the Lord is to have a fear and a terror and a trepidation before a holy, mighty, awesome, pure deity who can either forgive you or destroy you. It is to be like Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3, to have your knees knocking together and your stomach hurt and your lip quivering and you feel like you're going to be sick because you have been confronted by a holy God. But these men don't think they need forgiveness. Earlier in his ministry, some of these same men tried to undermine his ministry by slandering Jesus to his own disciples. Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners of various varieties, meaning he was eating with people who believed they were so far gone that they didn't even try to participate in the religious system of Israel. And Jesus is there hanging out with them. So some of these same men that we see here in John 9 asked Jesus' disciples, why is he eating with sinners? You can almost see the sneer on their face. Well, Jesus heard about it and gave this answer. He said in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who do you want to be? You want to be the sick person because that's who Jesus is coming for. In other words, those who believe themselves right before God cannot be forgiven because they don't think they have any sin. Therefore, they'll never humble themselves to confess. And so Jesus has told them in paradoxical fashion, if you were blind, you would admit your need for forgiveness. Then your guilt, literally in Greek, your sin would be gone. You would be justified and forgiven and given a place in the kingdom. But listen, there is no antidote for someone who doesn't think they've been poisoned and won't take the antidote. The only antidote to sin that exists is submitting to the Lordship of Christ and humbly receiving the forgiveness offered by him 
These men are the absolute epitome. They are the example of Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. They refused God's grace. Jesus Christ literally right here in front of them, and they could have simply fallen at his feet and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But they refused. How do you have spiritual sight and be blind? First, proudly assert your spiritual qualifications. Second, proudly refuse God's grace. And finally, proudly stay condemned. Proudly stay condemned. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus completes his paradoxical answer here. They're unwilling to acknowledge their sinful blindness. Thus, they would remain completely responsible, completely culpable for all their sin. And someday they will answer to God. And what a, what a contrast the man born blind, the Lord had been preparing his heart, preparing his heart, preparing his heart, and he's broken, he's humble before Christ. He's helpless to do anything about his own sin, and he knew it, and he jumped into the kingdom as soon as God opened the door. But these other men, Christ is, he's holding the door open. He's saying, look, it's open, it's open. All you have to do is admit you're blind, admit your sin, admit your need for forgiveness. And they reach out and they shut the door and said, we don't need that. We don't need that. Rather than bend their knee to Christ and come helplessly to the very Messiah that they claim to be waiting for, they would proudly stay on their feet all the way to their doom. You know, I've heard it said that people will go to hell for lack of five minutes of humility. The man born blind fell down at the feet of Jesus to be lifted up by Christ, and these Pharisees would stay standing in the face of Christ so that someday he will crush them and put them on their face. So that's how to have spiritual sight and be blind. Now, I got to thinking that maybe my explanation of this text isn't quite getting to our 21st century minds sometimes, that maybe it's just theoretical. Maybe it's just kind of idealistic. So I want to take a few moments and I want to expand on this and put this in terms that are a little bit more direct. Jesus ended this episode in very sober, and if I can say it this way, in very negative terms. And I want to stay true to that. That was the inspired text of God. So to help us understand this, maybe put it in a little bit easier to understand context. Instead of how to have spiritual sight and be blind, let's put it this way. How to be a church attender and go to hell. Lots of scripture we have before us here will help us with this, but I, I want to begin this how-to list, how to be a church attender and go to hell. And to help us, go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, I've preached this passage before. It's one passage that I wouldn't mind preaching over and over and over again. It needs to be preached. In Hebrews chapter 6, specifically in verses 4 through 6, the author is going to list some qualities that identify church attenders who aren't actually saved. And these are these little identifiers, they're going to sound very Christian-y. But these are terms and phrases that are never used anywhere else in the New Testament to speak of a regenerate, born-again believer in Christ. So let's see how to be a church attender and go to hell. Number one, be exposed to spiritual truth with no effect. Be exposed to spiritual truth with no effect. 
verse 4, putting together verse 4 and verse 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. This is not speaking of losing one's salvation. Jesus is very clear in John chapter 10 that he won't allow one saved person to ever be lost. But these are those who have once been enlightened. They've had intellectual exposure to spiritual truth. They've received knowledge. They've seen at least dimly the light of Christ. They've seen at least dimly the light of the gospel. They've been enlightened, but seeing God's light and receiving God's light are two different matters. They think they see, but they're blind. Here's the second way to be a church attender and go to hell. Experiment and try Jesus for a while. Experiment and try Jesus for a while. Verse 4 says that they tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the heavenly gift. Again, this is a phrase that's never used of a believer in the New Testament. Now, the text doesn't specify what the heavenly gift is exactly, but the most likely candidate is simply Christ and salvation. This is the gift spoken of in Ephesians 2. They've tasted. They've sampled. The gift was just tested, though, and not lived, not fully gulped, not fully received. The false believer has toyed with salvation. They've sort of joined the parade, but they're not playing in the band. Here's a third way to be a church attender and go to hell. Attend church for a good feeling. Attend church for a good feeling. Verse 4, these are those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared means to participate in, to be associated with. It's like someone else made a campfire and you snuck in and you kind of warmed your hands by a fire that didn't belong to you. They've seen the changed lives of those around them who possess the Spirit of God as born-again believers, but the Bible never says that Christians are associated with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Spirit. We're regenerated by the Spirit. We're changed by the Spirit. We're baptized into the church of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And even the unbeliever, so enjoying the fellowship and the camaraderie and and the feeling of being around believers who are truly worshiping Christ, can fool himself as merely a witness of the power of the Holy Spirit instead of a recipient of the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a fourth way to be a church attender and go to hell. Mistake Bible knowledge for salvation. Mistake Bible knowledge for salvation. In verse 5, these are those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now, this is interesting here. The, The usual word for word emphasizes the whole counsel of God. But this particular word is different. It speaks of lots of little individual parts, the phrases, the statements, all put together. These are people who have heard the word of God as bits and pieces of information. It's interesting. It's even inspiring information, but they've never put together the whole picture that the scriptures tell a redemptive story which culminates in Christ and I must bend the knee to Christ or I will be judged. This is a person who has spent months or years in church. I like to call them sometimes sermon junkies. They love preaching. They just don't love the God who's being preached about. And the more they know, the more they fool themselves into believing they're in Christ. Here's a fifth way to be a church attender and go to hell. See God's work and be a spectator only. See God's work and be a spectator only. In verse 5, they've seen the powers of the age to come. 
This is speaking of the future kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom's miraculous powers that will be normal and routine in the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. They saw the miracles performed by the apostles spoken of earlier in in Hebrews chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are the ones who maybe saw Jesus raise the dead, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, hear the term, heal the terminally ill, and yet they rejected him. Well, what about today? Well, this is the, the church attender who sees God's goodness in this family and in this family and in this family and in this family. Wow, how the Lord has blessed you. How the Lord has blessed you, but he's just a spectator. Now, for the sake of time, I want to continue this list without having you turn to various references. Here's a sixth way to be a church attender and go to hell. When your false faith is finally exposed, leave instead of repenting. When your false faith is finally exposed, leave instead of repenting. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they they are all not of us. Eventually, for many, they can't keep up the facade anymore because their faith has become exposed by their deeds as being false. And I'm amazed at how that happens over time that somebody who thinks they can fool a whole church eventually gets found out. And so they just disappear from from the church. Or more often than that, they'll find another church to fool or they'll find one that doesn't stand for the gospel, doesn't take a firm stand for righteousness. And they'll infiltrate those ranks. Here's a seventh way to attend church and go to hell. See yourself as above and different from others in the church. See yourself as above and different from others in the church. That is a telltale sign for leadership, by the way. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Christians serve to the best of their ability. Now, the question would be, well, how do we know who the Christians are? Well, we vet who the Christians are by means of a church membership process, and those are the ones who serve. Or how about this one, Proverbs 23, 23. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and an understanding. In other words, to receive truth from God costs. To do the work of the kingdom costs. To have the word of God proclaimed costs. To receive the preached word, it costs. And so we all give to this. We obey Paul's admonition from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I've preached that verse a few times, and some of you have told me, admitted, that you love the not under compulsion part. How about the each one must give part? So if you attend, but you don't serve, if you... Listen, but you don't give, but you just take and receive. What do we call that when you take something that you didn't pay for? It makes you a thief. You're showing where your heart actually is. Apparently, it's not with Christ, or the evidence would be there. You're letting others do the work of the kingdom while you just benefit. Or you could do the opposite of this. Number eight, mask your unbelief with great service. Mask your unbelief with great service. The false believer 
according to Jesus in Matthew 7, 22, will claim to do many mighty works in the name of Christ. But doing things doesn't have anything to do with being born again. Those two are not related. We do our best to not allow anyone to fool themselves or others with great service. This is why we have a membership process and that those who are members may serve. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 tells elders to, quote, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. We need a membership process to know who's part of the flock of God and who is among us. That's why we have that. But I still know it's possible to slide through and present yourself as a believer. Here's a ninth way to be a church attender and still go to hell. Keep to yourself how annoying committed Christians actually are. Keep to yourself how annoying committed Christians actually are. 1 John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love the brothers. The true believer loves others who are in Christ and deeply desires to fellowship with them, to worship with them, to serve alongside them, to walk through this life together, to walk each other to heaven. But if you want to maintain the facade, make sure not to let on how annoying that actually is. When people start talking about terrible things like loving Christ and loving the sermon and coming to church every week, reading their Bibles, communing with Christ, how great it is to serve, how great it is to pray, how great it is to give, how great it is to fellowship, you better hide your annoyance or they'll find out you're a fraud. Because the church of Jesus Christ loves the church of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more way to be a church attender and go to hell. Rebel against church members and leaders who have the courage to confront your sin. Rebel against church members and leaders who have the courage to confront your sin. All have a responsibility in this. Members, you are, according to Ephesians 4.25, to tell the truth to one another because we're members one of another. And you might say, well, I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to say when I tell the truth to somebody? Well, the Apostle Paul gives you a sample list in the, in the next part of the chapter. How about this? Stop being so angry. How about this? Quit stealing. How about this? Work hard and stop being lazy. How about this? Stop gossiping and tearing each other down. How about this? Forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. That's just your little starter list. Members, you have that responsibility when you see somebody acting in a way that is not conducive to being a believer in Christ. You must tell them. It is your duty. Leaders have a similar duty. Titus 2 verse 15 tells us that we are to declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. I have no problem at all, according to that verse, saying, stop messing around and listen. Let no one disregard you. This is life on life in your face. Do you want to be like Christ or not? That's what the church is. Rebel against that and you show your true colors. I've spent many thousands of hours with people in my counseling office. And when the subject of sin comes up and I point out something that they didn't see, there is always one of two responses. It's either immediate or it's later, but there's only two options. The Christian responds, I'm crushed. Thank you for pointing that out. The non-Christian responds, let me think about that or I think you're wrong. It's very simple. So do those things and you can be a church attender who goes to hell. I want to point out one last thing to you. You remember that when the man born blind had this conversation with Jesus, it was not private, it was public. 
because the Pharisees were right there. They were listening to all of this. He confessed Christ publicly right in front of those who hate him and hate Christ. After Pentecost, the way in which a person would publicly proclaim faith in Christ is through public baptism by immersion and joining officially with a local body of believers. That's how you proclaim faith in Christ. And to refuse to do either of those things would mean that that the real believers wouldn't take you seriously. They wouldn't give you the time of day. You want to follow Christ? Get baptized. You want to follow Christ? Join the church. I don't want to do those things. I want to be independent. Then we're not taking you seriously. Bother somebody else. You weren't committed to Christ. You're not committed to them. You're not committed to the church. And in a day where being publicly baptized, even like, or being publicly uh, aligning yourself with Christ, even like this man in John 9, in a day where it can cost you your life, don't come to me and say, I want to follow Christ, but I don't want to be part of the church. I don't want to be baptized. I don't want to proclaim my faith. My only answer to that is Jesus' answer, that if you're ashamed of him in this life, he's going to be ashamed of you in the next one. So when we say, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, that's not just a song we sing. That's not just an anthem. That's not just something to make us feel good. It is to trust him. It is to obey him. It is to come all the way to the cross. It is to stop fooling ourselves. It is to stop thinking that because we can do all of these churchy, Christian-y things that we're in Christ. When we say it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, it is to immerse our hearts in him. It is to immerse our lives in his It is to be crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have died to to myself and I live in Christ. It is all the way. Listen, Jesus made a promise that absolutely breaks my heart. He promised that the tares, the weeds, would grow up with the wheat in the church. He promised that in this room, there may be those who have been in church for weeks or months or years or decades, and that when you were eight years old, you made some profession of faith that you don't even remember, or when you were six, you made a profession of faith that you don't even remember, and you've checked that off as, I must be in Christ because I've been doing all these Christian-y things. I've been in church my whole life. I made that profession. I'm going to check it off. You know what they call that in the Gospels? They call that being a Pharisee being religious without knowing God. And I know this is a ridiculous request, but I've asked the Lord that we not have any terrors at grace. I've asked the Lord that he either save them or remove them so that we might be a pure body. And my hope and prayer today, whether you're listening here live or listening to this online, is that you would take a moment, take a moment, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 13.5, to examine yourselves and test yourselves. And if you say, but Steve, I'm a Christian. I've done this a thousand times. Go for a thousand and one. Just make sure. Just make sure. For lack of five minutes of humility, a person would go to hell for all of eternity. Don't think you see when you're blind. Admit you're blind so that you can see. Our Father, it is with thankful hearts that we know that when our eyes were opened to the gospel, it was because of the Spirit of God being gracious and kind. We are the ones who 
would rebel against you. We would shake our fist at God. We would be the ones who say, according to Psalm 14, for example, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We are the ones who have rebelled, who have lived lives with blindness. We have been blind to our own sin. We've been blind to the sin that has been our, our way of life since very, very small childhood. We've been blind to this. We've been blind to the mercies of God. We've, been, we've made Jesus into some sort of punchline to a joke. Christians are, are idiots in the world, and God is just some weird power out there that maybe, maybe might do something nice for me. If he doesn't, then I'm going to turn my back on him. We have been blind, 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 blind. But then like this precious man who went and washed the mud off of his eyes that Jesus himself put there and opened his eyelids, able to see all around him and now also able to see that he is forgiven and able to see his Savior and able to see the one that he must worship. You've been so gracious to us and I would pray for a man or a woman here who may be fooling themselves. It will take the Holy Spirit to pry that mud off of their eyes. But might you do that this day? And for those here who know Christ, who are in Christ, who are saved by the blood of the cross, we thank you and praise you for the gospel. We thank you for our Savior who sought after this blind man and in the same way he sought after us. And for that, we give you thanks. We give you our worship. We fall down before you. Because truly, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.